Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle-scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silent to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors and taxpayers. This week, Peter, I thought we might uh, start our discussion by uh, talking about where we've got to in terms of the market reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. As we know, there was a, a, a definite market crash or crisis, shall we say, of confidence and, uh, and a sharp fall in prices in March, uh, which continued into April. And then we started to have a rally. And since then, uh, a lot of the, uh, some of the, a good part of the, of the damage that was done has been reversed, but uh, it's by no means back to where we were. But the stock market, for example, has, uh, has rallied quite notably. And uh, the, uh, the bond market has been, until quite recently, has begun to stabilize a little bit. But the question is, there now seems to be a pause. This was not a particularly good week in the financial markets, the one just gone. Uh, and many investors seem to be now kind of reviewing where they, where they are in terms of the, uh, of the market response to the pandemic. In other words, they're beginning to wonder whether, despite the rally and despite the fact that several countries have announced an uh, end to lockdown measures, or a phased-in end to lockdown measures, that there may still be worse things to come than they've anticipated so far. How would you characterize where we are in the market at this point? Well, good morning, Jonathan. I was hoping you'd come up with an easier question, but nonetheless, I will try and answer it by saying that actually what happened from the bottom of the equity market until today has been called uh, various names. Pessimists call it a dead cat bounce. Other pessimists call it a bear market rally. And those who are neither pessimistic nor optimistic, but give things their proper name, call it a bull market. So from the 23rd of March onwards, we have enjoyed a bull market, which is not the way that commentators usually present it. I think that that bull market has now taken a bit of a break. And you ask why. The reason seems to be that we're in the middle of the earnings season in the US. And the earnings season bring out all sorts of things, including surprises, upward surprises on the upside, surprises on the downside. But the market seem to have been reacting in the last few couple of weeks more than proacting as they did before that. But what has been added into the pot is the belligerent saber-rattling comments by President Trump, which are aimed at China. Whether it's to do with the COVID-19 pandemic, where Trump accuses the Chinese of having started it, either by accident or on purpose, or whether it's President Trump accusing the Chinese of not buying enough agricultural products from America, which was the phase one deal which they had reached. So President Trump is saber rattling and the Chinese are playing the who blinks first game. And I noticed in the past, also going back a couple of years, whenever there was uh, the trade spat being brought into the forefront, the markets didn't like that. 
So the markets are more sensitive to uh, world trade issues like that um, at the moment than they are maybe to other things. So I so, think that's a direct uh, reply to your question is China. Right. So, but on the other hand, I mean, we could say that uh, the financial markets are, are basically driven by supply and demand. Uh, at least they have been historically. Uh, we could talk later about whether the intervention of policymakers and central banks has changed that or not. But uh, financial markets are meant to be able to see through this kind of political blustering, are they not? I mean, it is. it may affect sentiment, but President Trump, I don't think anybody is necessarily... Um, you know, going to go to jail on the strength of whether or not President Trump is uh, talking common sense or not. Uh, he often says things which are fairly absurd, shall we be blunt about it. Um, so is there that, but if there isn't any substance behind this kind of, uh, th these kind of theories, why then are markets taking them seriously? Because I think it's the mentality of President Trump is a mentality of doing deals. He's, he's not interested in, he doesn't think that the existing trade deals, whether it's with China or with the EU, or as we saw a couple of years ago with Mexico and Canada, he doesn't think that these, these trade arrangements are in the interest of, of the Americans. And that's why he comes out with these slogans like uh, America first and all these things. But equally, if trade between the two main trading blocks of the world uh, goes down, then that can't be good for financial markets. In terms of the first half of your question, I think that that goes right to the, to the point that markets are supposed to look ahead and look through. And they are basically looking through. That's why they're not crashing again based on the trade spat with China. In my opinion, they are looking through, and that's why they're suddenly being accused of being so expensive again. The P.E. ratios are so high, and the underlying earnings are going down, so the market is even more expensive, say the pessimists, than they were at the beginning of the year. But of course, anyone with a bit of experience knows that when markets are at the bottom, so to speak, they're going to be much more expensive. So you're supposed to buy the cyclical aspect of the stock market when the P-E ratios are very high, and you're supposed to sell them again when the P-E ratios are very low, which goes a little bit against what you might think is common sense. But you are long enough in the tooth, Jonathan, to know that that is true. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that, absolutely. I mean, the P-E ratio consists of, of two elements, so the, the price, uh, the share prices and the earnings of the companies involved. Uh, and they don't, it, they, if you base your whole investment philosophy on, on the P-E ratio, you're being very unwise because they're not consistent through different phases of the cycle. You're absolutely right about that. Added to which, we do know, we, at the moment we know the P, but we're not completely confident about the E, at least certainly beyond, uh, beyond the immediate future. We've had a lot of companies coming out and either reducing their earnings forecasts or talking about the, uh, you know, how the, the virus has affected their business, uh, and in many cases withdrawing guidance, which is the uh, technical term for how uh, companies manage, effectively help to manage their share prices by giving the market a clue as to what they expect their earnings to be, uh, and then routinely, if they're well managed, they come out slightly ahead of what they're 
they've told the market to expect. But at the moment, a lot of companies have withdrawn their earnings, their earnings uh, guidance because they just they obviously just don't know how this is going to play out. And therefore, even if even if one knew what the earnings were, your your point is absolutely correct uh, about uh, the high PEs in the, in this particular kind of market. Absolutely right. Uh, but secondly, if to the extent that there's still uncertainty about the course of earnings, that in turn is going to uh, make the PE ratio in isolation not a particularly meaningful guide to what to do. However, markets do have to make some kind of decision. I mean, investors do have to make some kind of decision about whether they own or sell or buy different uh, stocks. But I, I, the question I guess I'm going to put to you, Peter, is um, without putting you on your spot, if you say this is a bull market, uh, by which uh, and you could perhaps just define why you say that for those who don't quite uh, understand that, uh, are you saying that this bull market is set to continue, or are you saying that there have you are you ruling out, in other words, what the pessimists are saying, which is that if it's a bear market rally, we could see another significant down leg in the uh, in the stock market, certainly. Uh, and you, but you are discounting that, are you? Not altogether. I think it would be wrong to discount it altogether because that is effectively the risk. And there are certain things that could happen in an unforeseen way in the next few weeks and months that could actually uh, lead to the, to the share prices going down again. That is, that is sure. The obvious one being, of course, a resurgence in infections from the COVID-19, um, another lockdown, and that could have could have pretty grave uh, consequences. But on the other hand, I think that we investors must always look at the three, we, we mentioned this before, by the way, in, in previous weeks, and it's quite useful to remember that, that one needs to think about the three pillars which underpin the, the stock markets, you know, and that is growth, liquidity, and valuation. And where there is uncertainty about any one of these three or all three or two of the three elements, then that gives cause for concern. But just because something is bad doesn't mean it's uncertain. I'd rather have the certainty of bad news than the uncertainty. And I think we all know that growth is going to be appalling, whether it's consumer growth. Just look at the, the money supply the monies that are placed on deposit, they've gone shooting up because people are not spending. So we know that the, that the growth element will be very tricky, but at least we know it. So you can put a tick next to that box. Then there's a liquidity box. Can that be ticked? I would say that liquidity is around in abundance. And uh, those doubters of the liquidity, uh, all you have to do is look and see what the central banks have been doing and supplemented by what the politicians are doing on the fiscal front. The combination of these two things is absolutely huge. So there is liquidity sloshing around. Banks have started to lend again at, um, with, with um, quality, the quality criteria being to a certain extent relaxed. So the liquidity is there in abundance. And then, of course, valuation. We just talked about earlier on. Uh, I don't think the valuations are particularly high at all, uh, neither on the, based on the long-term averages, nor really based on, uh, on much else. So 
And in any case, valuation is a very complex subject. And as you just said yourself, Jonathan, you can't just use the PE ratio, uh, the ratio of price to earnings. You, you've got to look at all sorts of other things that are embedded in the valuation. And the PE ratio, the use of that is very widely, is very wide. So it's widely used, but it's also widely misused. But in my book, the three boxes of growth, liquidity, and valuation uh, are ticked. So you could have another black swan, or you can have a phase two of the COVID-19 black swan. These are all the sort of general risks. But in my opinion, we are back in a bull market. That is my view. Okay. So well, let's just take back from the market and have a look at the, what's happening in the, in the economy. I mean, for example, uh, this is in some part response to what you've just said, but I mean, the Bank of England came out recently with its latest uh, quarterly uh, report, which I'm sure is echoed by other countries around the world. Uh, and it was saying that it estimates that uh, world GDP is going to fall by 20% in the second quarter, uh, and that uh, world trade has, has, has shrunk dramatically, as, uh, as, you've, uh, as you've alluded to, uh, and that these are causes for concern. Obviously, even in, on their scenario, it's going to take a couple of years for, on, uh, for the world economy to get back, and the UK economy to get back to where it, where it was before the pandemic. So there's sort of two years of, if you like, of, uh, of uh, lost economic growth, the, the kind that we were expecting. But more importantly, they were talking about the importance of confidence in this situation. Uh, and they were saying that, of course, it does depend what people do, whether people save money, which is not perhaps if they're more frightened, they're more uncertain. Uh, and companies may uh, hold back from investing because they're, they're lacking confidence in the outlook. Uh, that's a real problem for them because that does raise the risk that if they people do save too much money, if they uh, if companies stop investing, we are at a risk of getting into what we would call a serious deflationary downturn because there isn't enough demand. Essentially, the problem they had in the 1930s and so on, the Great Depression, there isn't enough demand, uh, and somehow you've got to pull out all the stops to get demand going again. That is the policymaker's job, if you like, in this, in this particular situation. So do you think that what we're looking at here is uh, a real threat of deflation, or are we actually going to see a very successful, it would have to be successful, to get the world back to conditions of inflation, which is a mild inflation, which is the way we want to be uh, in, in the generality? Do you think that, are we going to go through a deflationary period before we get back to normality? We already are in a deflationary period. The latest numbers coming out of America have shown a negative consumer price inflation number. So we are in deflation. We're in deflation around the world, I would say, which is not, nothing to be too alarmed about because we, we go there from time to time. And there are two types of deflation. I think that's more important. There's a deflationary bust, and then there's a deflationary boom. The deflationary boom is where the absence of price increases um, makes an outlook more stable. And obviously, those people with over-indebted balance sheets are not going to benefit from a deflationary boom. But those who have strong ba uh, balance sheets as well as the consumer, because the consumer at the moment has a strong balance sheet. He's wound down his debt. It's taken him 10 years. But today, household debt is much healthier than it was 10 years ago. The deflationary bust scenario is much more dangerous 
And that could happen and certainly will happen to those companies that have indebted balance sheets, uh, over-indebted balance sheets, because they were, they were attracted to this myth that when money is cheap, you should borrow it. Um, and you, again, in America, I keep coming back to America because it's the biggest economy, uh, you've had a string of household name bankruptcies, the latest one being J.C. Penney. I know that it's been on the sick list for years, but you've got department stores and so on that are, that for them, what we're experiencing is a deflationary bust. That's for sure. Now, which of the two will prevail, the boom or the bust, depends who you ask. If you ask the government bond market, they're leaning towards a deflationary bust. But if you're looking, you're asking the equity markets, they're leaning towards the deflationary boom. And in a deflationary boom, of course, the quality of your earnings is better, and therefore the market places a higher price on, the, on those earnings which you could argue is what's happening, is what's happening today. So um, you've got this, this push-me-pull-you between what the bond markets are signaling and what the, what the stock markets are signaling. I take my cue from the stock markets because on the whole they're right and they're looking through. Um, and with regard to the bond yields, it takes us back to the age-old discussion about whether central banks are artificially keeping the price of money low and would they please take their hands away and let nature take its course that's a very interesting discussion in itself which uh, which we can certainly have so what where we are at the moment we are in a world where we have as you said uh, price prices are falling dramatically and they are heading towards zero uh, if not falling below zero in for at least briefly temporarily uh, and we're also in a position where uh, the <clears throat> interest rates are going basically of going again negative or in, in real danger of going negative across the world particularly in the United States where they have uh, which of course as you say is the biggest economy in the world so negative interest rates do pose terrific challenges for the policymakers I think there's no doubt about that everyone has acknowledged that for many years it means that some of the traditional tools which they have used to uh, help stimulate the economy are no longer available but there are others that they, other things that they can do and other things which they have been doing and uh, uh, they're busy talking about it right now. Perhaps you could uh, just tell us where you think we are in terms of interest rates and why, why negative interest rates are a problem for policymakers, but also uh, an opportunity in some ways. I'm glad you asked that question in connection with, with uh, again, with America. Because if you look at Europe, for example, <clears throat> We have negative interest rates and bond yields and, and have had it for quite some time. And the central bank in Europe has been very much the object of criticism from politicians um, and from banks and above all from pensioners. If we go through those, starting with the banks, the bank's net interest margins, which is the difference between what it costs them to borrow money and what they make from lending money, uh, these margins are very, very much squeezed by negative interest rates. And so the propensity for banks to lend is lessened, which is apparently a red flag for the pessimists. It's less of a red flag for me 
because a lot of the lending, the corporate lending in the European Union is done through capital markets rather than through the banks. Not as much as could and should be the case, but it means that the, 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 that the banking system will be less affected by negative interest rates than it might be were lending to be as important as it used to be. The second area of concern, of course, is for pensioners. Because, and, that, and that applies all around the world. Pension funds are obliged by law to have a certain proportion of fixed income investments. And when the yield on these fixed income investments goes down and to zero and to minus, it means that the liabilities that pension funds have towards their pensioners are not being met by the incoming income stream. And so the ultimate victim is going to be the pensioner and the savers, of course, savers as well, who have their money in banks. And that is, has caused an uproar in certain um, countries and certain areas where they call it the, the euthanization of the pensioner. And that's a very, very big problem. But it's not a problem that the central banks have invented. It's a problem that the regulators have invented by not allowing pension funds to invest more of their money into going and growing concerns, which would be a great step forward for this, for this general problem. In America, the, the negative interest rates, of course, would affect the big swathes of so-called money market funds that would all have negative returns. So the purpose of that is to spur the consumer into going out and consuming, which of course he can't do at the moment because of COVID, and to spur the corporate sector to invest and to increase their capital expenditure. That's the purpose of these negative rates, to make it unattractive to hold your money either in your pocket or in your drawer or in your bank. But it comes with a lot of collateral damage. Now, will it happen in the States? Chairman Powell has sworn that it won't. But if you look at the so-called futures market, then, of course, the futures market tell you that it's inevitable. So somebody's going to be right and somebody's going to be wrong. Okay, so uh, the futures market is the place where people go to speculate or, or to... Uh, uh, or to protect themselves against what they see as possible developments in the following year, two years, three years, and so on. So one could read through that, uh, uh, as you say, uh, an implication or an inference that uh, some people in the financial markets are expecting us to negative interest rates uh, next year in the, in the world's largest economy. Uh, I, I want to add one thing, though. I mean, I went back and looked at uh, the, uh, a famous speech by, uh, by Ben Bernanke, who was the former chairman of the Federal Reserve before Mr. Powell, uh, which is the speech he made in 2002, which he said at the time people were starting to worry about deflation. It's the first time that people have worried about deflation for a long time, I think. Uh, and he said, don't worry about the fact that the conventional instruments that central banks have uh, won't be sufficient to deal with deflation. Everybody was worried about what had been happening in Japan for the last the previous 20 years or 15 years, uh, where they've had persistent deflation for quite a long time. Uh, and what would it happen to other countries? And he said, no, don't worry about it. There's always things that the central banks can do, even when they've exhausted their ability to reduce interest rates. Because if interest rates go negative, obviously you can't cut interest rates to below zero. Well, that's what everybody thought at the time anyway. 
it turns out that was actually wrong. <laughs> you can do that. Um, but his, his main point was that there are lots of things that the central banks could do in a crisis like this, if we were approaching a crisis like this, and which some people think we are. Um, but he did also finish his remarks by saying, that's in theory. In practice, it requires decisions by politicians to allow things to happen that might actually deal with that problem. And that's going to be a very complicated issue. And we've seen already, you're talking about President Trump and his possibly unhelpful interventions in the way that markets operate. So I do think we have to worry. There are very complex trade-offs. If we do fall into generalized deflation around the world, and we try and solve them with the tools that Mr. Bernanke identified, which basically involves printing a lot of money, basically, uh, central banks printing an awful lot of money, not just a lot of money, an awful lot of money. Um, but there are a lot of difficult trade-offs to be made. And while in the, in, the, in the ideal world, we can see that all working out beautifully, uh, I think it's much more harder to see whether the uh, politicians around the world will be able to produce the kind of uh, coordinated and uh, well-managed response that, uh, uh, that would be needed. And that is my main concern about where we go from here, is that I do think that there are really difficult political decisions to be made, and we might, uh, we might not get the ones we, we want or indeed we deserve. You, you couldn't be more right. And what, what has suddenly appeared now on the scene, which was absent in the past, are the courts. Because what I'd like us to discuss next week, as we're running out of time, is the Rubicon line that is being crossed between the central bank and its independence, on the one hand, and on the other hand, governments who are not supposed to borrow directly from central banks, and central banks are not supposed to lend directly to governments. Are they doing so now? Well, the, court, the courts, as we saw in Germany this week, think so. The markets don't have time for these discussions. And the politicians, of course, because they're never going to have to repay anything for the money that they're borrowing, uh, are there with extended hands. And I think that's what we should discuss, uh, because that's an extremely important subject also for the question of the future of deflation versus inflation. It's very technical, so we need to discuss it in as simple terms as possible. But I think that we need to address this very difficult subject. We need to address that, John. Indeed, and I'm sure we will. I look forward to doing that, uh, Peter. As you said, it's a complicated situation. It's a global uh, crisis that we're facing, if you believe it's a crisis, and it is going to require uh, a lot of uh, complicated and uh, sensible decisions from policymakers all around the world. Uh, and it would be ideal, it would be much better if they weren't, uh, as you say, um, jawboning and threatening each other with things along the way. I look forward to having that discussion, Peter. It's been very interesting. And we'll see whether the markets, um, which path the markets choose to follow over the next few weeks. Uh, but let's, uh, let's meet again next week and crack on. I look forward to that, Jonathan. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah Weekly Podcast, hosted by Jonathan Davis and Peter Silent. These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice. <laughs>